0: Welcome back to the Zero Hour brought to you by Safeguard Cyber. It is week 3 of our cybersecurity awareness month weekly podcast series.
1: This week we are so excited to have Renee Duresta join us on the podcast. She is a 2019 Mozilla Fellow in media misinformation and trust.
0: Yes. And for everyone who heard about the Senate Intelligence Committee's final report on Russian interference into uh, the 2016 presidential election, if you read the reports you and their findings, you would note that it was Renee's research that was cited quite frequently in the footnotes. So we were very excited to have firsthand uh, account of her analysis and also her approach to how to tackle this problem more generally. So, without further ado, let's turn it over to Renee DeResta. All right. Um, Welcome to the Zero Hour, Renee. Thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, So why don't we start out with a little bit about your background and how you came to study disinformation and and if you would also uh, help our listeners understand um, what is the Mozilla Fellowship Program.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, I am a Mozilla Fellow in Media, Misinformation, and Trust um, until the end of December. So <laughs> the end of my, uh, my my tenure there is approaching. Um, I work with them on um, part of their broader internet health initiative. So, Mozilla Foundation, which is what uh, the fellowship program uh, runs through, is separate than Mozilla.com. So I don't work. Mm-hmm the browser. Uh, the foundation is set up with a broader mission to look at things like internet health, um, concerns that people have related to privacy concerns related to security, uh, related to, um, kind of equitable uh, distribution of the, the, the benefits of the internet. So a lot of work outside of the U S as well. Um, and then I was brought on as a fellow in, uh, Early 2018, January, I think 2018, um, to begin to look at disinformation and misinformation. Prior to that, I had been doing this work um, as as kind of a you know a, a hobby, almost sort of a weird hobby to have. But I had gotten involved in it because I was, um, you know, a mom. And in 2014, I started looking at um, vaccine related content online, uh, particularly around things like um, vaccination rates in schools and just was inundated with this proliferation of misinformation. As soon as I started searching. Oh yeah. Vaccine misinformation became, and actually became the dominant thing that was getting pushed into my Facebook feed because I had indicated that I was receptive uh, to that content entirely because I was just clicking around at the time, trying to find schools in California. I I live in San Francisco and I was trying to find schools, ironically, that had high vaccination rates. And so, you know, (laughs) I, I indicated that you know that this was a topic I was interested in, um, and all of a sudden it became all I saw uh, in my in my Facebook feeds. And I worked on the uh, law to eliminate vaccine opt-outs a little bit later in um, you know March through June or so, 2015. And I did some research on the conversation on Twitter that was happening about that law, and the hashtag was uh, SB 277, which was the bill's number at the time. Mm-hmm. And I was following the Twitter conversation and observing um, the extent to which the conversation uh, was really just, you know, it was a, it was basically a fight for share of attention for share of voice and, and, you know, anti-vaccine activists from Texas were kind of changing their profile pictures and you know, doing things to make it look like they belonged in the conversation. So we had all of a sudden all of these out-of-staters pretending to be Californians. Um, we had kind of coordinated communications that were happening where they would be given instructions in a YouTube video late at night that would that would, you know, kind of drop the memes and things that they were supposed to tweet the next day. And it wasn't that it was, you know, foreign influence or anything like that. It was just an indication that the internet environment, that the ecosystem was just perhaps better set up for this kind of coordinated, you know, coordinated activity and sensational content. And so that was how I started looking at a little bit more broadly. Um, It wasn't Russian interference that of course was the concern. It was just how does the, how are the algorithms, how is the structure of the information ecosystem um, privileging this kind of misinformation or sensationalism or conspiracy theories. Uh, and I was really bothered by it, actually. So I, I just started uh, kind of writing and uh, speaking at Ignites and at Google I.O. and at these other events, because, you know, I live in the Valley, so I'm with tech, mm-hmm. you know, I'm in the industry. Um,
0: you were in the lion's den.
2: Yeah, well, just saying, you know, hey, you guys have a problem here. You've got to do something about it. And then from there, I wound up actually getting asked to work on some of the counter ISIS efforts, uh, which is such a random um, kind of, you know, career turn in a sense, uh, in that I'm not a counterterrorism expert. But the reason they asked me to participate in the project uh, was because ISIS was using Twitter in much the same way that anti vaccine activists were using Twitter. So all of a sudden, we had this question of like, okay, you know, these are everybody's really just using marketing best practices. And we're seeing really an evolution in propaganda uh, and how propaganda is disseminated. And then from there, it turned into a little bit more of a, um, a little bit more of a, of a, question of um, how do we think about the information environment and the balance between free expression and the, these tactics that are being used uh, to really make very small groups of people look much, much larger than they actually are. Uh, and that was kind of how, uh, how this wound up becoming a little bit more of a, of a full-time job, really trying to get a better understanding of how we quantify things like that.
0: Yeah, and I, that strikes me as interesting because, um, you know, the – the well, how do I approach this? The misunderstanding and then deliberate misinformation around vaccines is this holdover from a more traditional time, right? We had the discredited article in the Lancet, which um, had hypothesized uh, some connection between um, the uh, – measles mumps and um what is the other one uh vaccine leading to autism right and that had been debunked in a peer-reviewed journal was later picked up um by some celebrities etc and that is somewhat like domestically generated misinformation and then to see this turn into disinformation and i used that uh deliberately right we had people who took what was a mistaken article and then we had what you explain here, people deliberately trying to mask their identities to push a certain agenda. And now, of course, that um, issue is just an opportunistic one for foreign actors to use to divide us. But it's interesting that your origin should start not in um, what we now hear in the zeitgeist as a more politically motivated foreign actor base, but really a a domestically generated problem.
2: I think... um a lot of us who um, worked on the countering ISIS propaganda work came at it from a number of different backgrounds. Some were um, some were marketing experts, you know, and, and mm-hmm. had a deep understanding of how you use persuasion techniques. Uh, some were doing network analysis. That's where I was. Um, some were, you know, actual res- actually responsible for things like counter messaging. How does the, you know the, the question was not just. What do we do about ISIS on social platforms? In an abstract sense, it was really like quite, quite strategic. Actually, it was very much like, what is the strategy that U.S. government uses to counter this problem, and what are the tactics that are appropriate for countering it on privately owned social platforms that appear to have no interest in, uh, you know, in in drawing bright lines around um, or, or or getting into the. Maybe I should say the the muddier areas around where is the line between freedom of expression and uh, and your right to disseminate terrorist propaganda, um, and the you know that was really an interesting debate in 2015 because there were a lot of people, uh, and if you go back and you know Google for news articles you'll find this folks like in EFF who were saying um, mm-hmm. Twitter shouldn't be listening to the U.S. government you know U.S. government shouldn't be telling a private company what to do and then you had people at Twitter who were thinking about you know maintaining their position as the free speech wing of the free speech party. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and, and, and then there are others, those of us like me, who are like, you know, Hey guys, it's a terrorist organization. And uh, it was just, it was just bizarre. Well, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And I was like, you know, I feel like ISIS, there's actually global consensus, you know? <laughs> yes.
0: I feel like that one was not, not so much up for debate. I
2: feel like if you can't do it with that one, where are you going to go? <laughs> Sort of a you know, little bit of a, you know, surreal introduction to this. And then the thing that actually is really interesting about that time for me, and Rick Stengel has now written a book about this. So it's actually kind of out there in public. Um, Richard Stengel, he was the, uh, I think, editor of Time magazine, I believe, previously. And then he was the undersecretary of state at State Department. Um, and uh, he just came out with a book uh, la- last week. I'm not done with it yet. Um but what people were saying while we were doing this ISIS work and you know all of us were in complete agreement about it was US government's response should not be designed to deal with one adversary it should be a designing a whole of government approach recognizing that the information ecosystem is already a vast tool for propagandists and, and anyone who wants to exercise influence and people had already been talking about Russia for six months by that point within government. And Adrian Chen's article, the agency came out in, I think July of 2015 and we were doing Mm -hmm. this in October of 2015. We all knew that it was, you know, a, a significant emerging, um, threat. And sure enough, as you know, 2016 played out, um, I was not involved in any of the conversations I wasn't involved with the administration uh, but as you read in the in the book and then uh, as, as news articles have come out about this too the Obama administration struggling with the realization that this is in fact being these strategies are being run by a state actor as well and what is it that we're supposed to be doing about that
1: right it's a it's an everyone problem both public right. and private so at the beginning of October, the Senate Intelligence Committee released the second volume of their report uh, on 2016 election interference. And that report cited the work done by you and your colleagues, the tactics and tropes of the Internet Research Agency. For our listeners, can you summarize the report and what the intentions were yeah, for writing so it? Yeah,
2: so I... Um... I did some of the work in 2017, um, really calling for tech, the tech hearings. And as part of that, I, I had gotten to know um, folks on the Intelligence Committee, and I had kind of repeatedly been describing, like, how can I help the senators understand the mechanics by which this happens? Um, so one of the things that I kept saying was, you know, those of us who were on the outside, uh, you know, Dr. Jonathan Albright was a big part of, uh, of the, the research team. Dr. Chris Schaefer, um, a, a number of us, everybody on the team had written or in some way, um, studied, uh, Computational propaganda. And so we kept saying, you know, when I was doing my um, kind of, <laughs> it's not lobbying, it's like citizens, like literally going to DC and being like, I really think you need to hold a hearing on this you know? <laughs> um, well, we appreciate a that. L lobbying maybe, but like like pleading with them to, to, to hold the hearings and saying like, you've got to get the data sets out of the companies because their public statements don't align with what we're seeing uh, as we search for this content online. Mm-hmm. So you know we're hearing $100,000 of ads. Okay, maybe it was $100,000 of ads, but like based on this crowd tangled data leak we have, it looks like it had extraordinary reach at way bigger than the kind of reach would ordinarily get from a paid campaign. So how can we possibly um, how can we reconcile these two things? And so the Senate did, in fact request the data set, uh, and then they put together a program where they had a few different teams analyze it. Uh, we didn't know who the other teams were. And we weren't permitted to communicate with them until kind of the very end. Uh, and that was because they really wanted to make sure that their research was independent. And they wanted, mm-hmm. either, so there are three three teams, uh, they wanted to see if we came to the same conclusions. Part of the reason the Senate did this, and I think it was very, very smart, is because this was such a political hot button issue. Um, and they knew that, you know, the best way to, you, know, you can either go through like, a, <laughs> either like, if you can't discredit the... Uh, the actual work, you're going to either discredit the process or the researcher. So they tried to do uh, the best job possible to, uh, to come up with this, um, this, this program to analyze the data. It was about 400 gigs worth of stuff. Um, It was provided by uh, Alphabet. So Google uh, gave search ads and, um, and, uh, and YouTube data. So YouTube channels, and then Facebook provided Facebook and Instagram data. And then, um, Twitter gave uh, gave its own data set, and Twitter's actually wound up being by far the most comprehensive. So, with the Twitter data set, we got a lot of really interesting information on metadata and uh, and IP addresses and things like that. Uh, so, it was kind of our first, you know, like outside researchers who look at this stuff can see the content, but the um, platforms can see the metadata, and so that was the the big um, gap that we had. We really didn't know how the operation been uh, carried out. And so we were doing this work, analyzing the data that the platforms provided to the companies. And this is at the same time that the Miller investigation is going on. And right. there were, so that actually was also um, fantastic because for <laughs> for those of us, who- <laughs> because we could see what their findings were as well. And so everybody had uh, the same consensus uh, on the content in the material, the goal of the operation, the fact that it had very much been... Stridently anti-Hillary Clinton um, and uh, and in support of uh, you know then Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. So that was a thing that was um, regardless of where your political allegiance lay, that was an incontrovertible fact. Um, yes,
0: and I, and I think what stands out to me is that Twitter has continued to release this data. I think that just recently they released a packet of. Uh, influence operations related to iran but if you go to their um, blog they are releasing regular data sets around different nation states which uh, is a is a really transparent and commendable step but you know been, there are they've like, been fantastic
2: they are. since this uh yeah so, since that first you know i think they originally got um criticized a little bit for not necessarily digging as hard as they could have that was something mm-hmm. that in early 2017 uh but the the subsequent responses have been fantastic particularly the commitment to transparency which i think as One of the reasons for doing this project, besides for the government to have an understanding of what was going on, one of the things that we were trying to do with the tech hearings as well was convey to the American people that this had happened. Because if you recall, back in 2017, the idea was so, (laughs) like, to people, particularly people who had supported the president, of course, because this seemed like an affront to the legitimacy of the election. Right. And so it was taken very personally. And ironically, the Russian trolls were still active in 2017, particularly early 2017. And so the meme content that they were putting out during that early discovery phase was stuff like you know, um, oh, the stupid Democrats are blaming it on the Russians. And they put out these really funny memes, Um, you know, Hillary Clinton's face on a little golden book cover uh, saying, like, anybody I don't like is a Russian troll or. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it strikes Um, me. It strikes me as, um, you know, someone who grew up with parents in the State Department uh, that these. Russian actors and, well, to saw a lesser extent, other state actors, in terms of diplomatic training, have an incredible grasp of American culture mores and how information travels on social media.
2: Yes, I think that's true. Sorry, my uh, notification muting did not go as well as I thought. Let me just try to do it. Sure. Um, so the yeah, the way that the um. The way that we saw that play out, and the Mueller investigation actually had far more insight into that than we did with just the social media data set. Uh, The Mueller investigation also had the financial records, so they Mm -hmm. were tracking the expenditures, they were tracking the accountant, um, they were tracking folks who were... um, participating in uh, logistical setup for internet research agency trolls. And so what was happening was they actually sent a team of people here, uh, I think two to three people who traveled the United States, um, you know, went down to Texas, really tried to get a sense of American culture. So there was, they leaned into some of the very old issues, right? Stuff like race relations. Um, mm. They have been, leaning into since the Cold War days, that that wasn't a new, um, you know, challenge for American society. So they knew that one quite well and kind of kept going with it. Um, but they did a lot of uh, kind of, you know, the reconnaissance work necessary to figure out um, what the hot button issues were and what region. Uh, they clearly were staying on top of, of uh, influencer conversations. So particularly on Twitter, really mm. following um, American chatter and just seeing what people were talking about and getting into the conversation there. So there was some stuff that was purely opportunistic. Like there's that report that everybody talks about with the Russians don't want you to vaccinate your kids. That wasn't really what happened. What happened with that report was during uh, that activity was during 2015, ironically, this was the SB 277 debate. This was during the Disneyland measles outbreak. Right. And, oh, huge numbers of Americans were were talking about anti-vaxxers on Twitter. And so they just got into that conversation because it was kind of opportunistically there.
0: Right, seize, like seize the wedge and, and drive and it particularly further.
2: Particularly on Twitter, um, chatter around things that they didn't consider primary topics. Mm-hmm. And by primary topics, I mean what they were putting out on Facebook and Instagram Uh, And themes and YouTube channels where they were constantly reinforcing certain themes, big overarching themes. Uh, And that was more like, who is an American and what is America for? You know, these really kind of existential society dividing issues. Mm -hmm. Twitter, they were also participating in any random um, polarizing event that happened to, you know, make its way through the feed that day.
0: Yeah, and I think you know what struck Ashley and I the most in the report was your reference to the IRA as marketing like a, quote, sophisticated marketing agency in a centralized office environment. And I say that because Ashley and I both in a past life worked for a marketing agency, and, and we could see that um, – Plainly, And then the report also revealed some interesting things, especially the interplay between paid media, uh, <laughs> organic media, which I'm not sure the general populace sort of understands the interplay of those. And then what you refer to as the media mirage which is also something that we saw play out in Ukraine uh, with our own yeah. work. So we saw them you know, using Black Hat SEO to get things at the top of search results. Bots would boost certain videos. So basically, any time you were looking for any type of information, whatever narrative they had constructed, they'd close off all the corners, right? So you would run into into what they wanted you to see. Um, so I was curious if you could take a step back and, and kind of explain that Um marketing agency model because I don't think that that has been hit upon uh as well as it should have in the popular media it just sort of comes out with these headlines like Russian trolls spent a hundred thousand dollars and and that's sort of reported in isolation relative to the the entire effect the more coherent uh whole
2: yeah so I would say when we talk about the marketing um the marketing agency component. I also ran marketing for a couple startups. That was, uh, <laughs> when I was, you know, my past life, not an agency at all. Just how do I grow an audience for my own company? Right. Mm-hmm. So we looked at things, you know, everybody's you're instrumenting your content, you're testing what works. You're, um, you know, you're, you're doing, if you're running Facebook ads, which I was, you're doing, um, targeted audiences, then lookalike audiences, custom audiences. Which, interestingly enough, they did not do a very good job with. That, I think, was actually – that was the most remarkable thing for me was – well, (laughs) there were a lot of remarkable things. But in terms of things that they didn't do, uh, it was really – they didn't have a a, a depth of sophistication um, around Facebook's ad targeting tools. So the targeting was precise, and the click-through rates on their ads were quite high. um, But they – while they were kind of doing a good job of targeting things societally in terms of actually targeting people around an election uh they weren't doing a very good job with that so that was an
3: mm-hmm.
2: um you know they they really nailed the societal division audience building aspect but they didn't do as good a job um targeting swing districts or anything like that so i think it was a lot of uh, a lot of what they were doing was you know they're they're building their user acquisition funnel so they have their um They have their paid ad and their paid ad routes to people who um, it's encouraging people to like the page uh, or to sign up for an event. And so they're always the ads are always driving people uh, to get in more intimately uh, with the operation. And so once you have joined the page, of course, you're going to see the organic content. Um, once you sign up for the, you know, once you sign up for the ad, you're potentially also going to continue to, um, to see content from the the page or the organizer. Um, they also reached out to people directly over messenger and
3: mm-hmm.
2: where that was where for me, that was the, the, the leap from this is, that is not a marketing agency tactic. That's an intelligence tactic. Right. And so this was where um, we talked about, their mimetic operation, their propaganda operation, being run like a marketing agency, but then it layers in this um, this intelligence community, uh, you know, this this intelligence asset development process, um, where they're turning people unwittingly into uh, into agents in their operation by doing things like giving them money to. Um, to teach uh, self-defense classes to black people or uh, they're providing them money to hire a Hillary Clinton impersonator for a protest or they're providing a Black Lives Matter activists with money and resources for uh, for posters and things like that. So they, they do begin to really, um, you know, develop relationships you see i think it was in the Mueller report you see them have a conversation or maybe it's one of the eastern district indictments um, where they're having a conversation with somebody where they're trying to get the person to run ads on their behalf Um, right you know they had just lost their ads account right
0: (laughs) yeah and we actually just saw an article recently in buzzfeed where um a fraudulent ad vendor was doing the same thing where it was yep. paying, uh, I think what was described as Midwestern housewives to basically squat on their accounts or, you know, leverage their accounts to create separate ad accounts.
2: Yeah. And they did this in Russia, did this in, um, in the recent Ukrainian election per, per reporting as well, because one of the challenges is, you know, it's an arms race and you're playing within an ecosystem that has rules and the rules are set by the platforms mm-hmm. and it, <clears throat> some of the rules are explicit policy rules. Like you have to be verified to run political ads and some are rules uh, more in terms of um, this is what this feature can do. Right. And so you have this environment and they're operating within this environment. And so anytime the rules change, they find a way around it. Uh, or, you know, this is kind of um, what do you, you know <laughs> when Facebook says you have to get verified and for whatever reason you can't get verified. Well, you can theoretically uh, pay a contractor, a spammer of some sort, right?
0: Right. You can build a build so, a better yeah. build a better safe. They'll figure out how to crack it.
2: Yeah, exactly. So that's the uh, so th- these are the kinds of things that we're expecting to see. I participated um, in some economically motivated takedown research. Uh, I found a uh, Blue Lives Matter network operating out of Kosovo. And you know it had a couple thousand a couple hundred thousand uh followers I think about three hundred and seventy five thousand followers or something like that um all you know talking about blue lives matter content and um And, you know, very inflammatory content. And, of course, they were posting things that were just blatantly false, right, saying that um, an officer who had been killed two or three years prior had uh, been killed, you know, that week, really just to drive engagement, to to get people commenting on the post and things like that. So then people would comment and say how sorry they were for this officer and his family. I mean, really depraved stuff like that, and it was just so gross. Um, And they didn't run a single ad, and they were doing it entirely because one of the pages then had outlinks to their – crappy fake news website. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is like the Macedonian teenager operation all over again, where the guy is talking about how he was envisioning, um, you know, earning a couple hundred thousand dollars a month, uh, because these rubes were clicking on his content and going through and visiting his site. And so that's the kind of thing where that particular one is economically motivated, but you can also envision a world in which more sophisticated state actors, hire people to do just that so that on the surface it looks like spam um if you you know if the operation is uncovered it's kind of written off as spam but there's also
0: right it becomes a it's like a proxy war or,
2: yeah it's it's a proxy this is sort of the you know anyone can do it and everyone is kind of um phase of the internet right now and the platform policies are all over the place and um you know facebook's in particular are sort of internally inconsistent at this point and so it's a uh, Um, you know, it's, we made a lot of progress since 2016, but we're not quite there yet. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of what you're describing is really eye opening. And I think
1: a lot of this stuff gets sort of missed in in the media and the reporting. I, I found myself personally gasping out loud, um, when you're talking about the techniques and what you touched on earlier, the integration of real people into campaigns. So that means that real Americans were unwittingly used as propaganda collateral in a foreign influence operation. Could you talk a little bit more about an example of how that happened? You mentioned influencers and um, paid to promote
2: different products. Yeah, so they're, they're, they did it in a few different ways. Um, First, there was what I just described. So the the kind of infiltration of the activist communities. Um, then there was the, how do you make your pages look more legitimate? Well, a lot of what they were doing was... Um, running pages targeting the African-American community. And so what they would do was they would run these Instagram cross promotions with, um, you know, black community targeted brands. So brands that were producing products that would have a high appeal uh, to the community that they were going after. And so with the black community, that was, um, you know, there were some skincare and haircare product lines. Um, over in the LGBT pages, there was, <laughs> there were actually, you um, kind of uh there was a sex toy company that was lgbt friendly and so there were these rainbow <laughs> you know <laughs> like you know products in the you know, images of them in the data set and it's like what on earth is this you know <laughs> <laughs> um then there were the uh not what on earth is this from the standpoint of like what is this object but more like why is there you know why are there lgbt oriented sex right. toys in my data set you know? <laughs> um and then there was uh what else? Uh, there were um, triptychs of American flags and you know, wall art and uh, yeah,
0: that was fascinating to me that they should they that they could set up these sort of fake merch pages to lure people in. I don't think that has been reported as much and. and-
2: they set up some, and then they promoted others. Mm-hmm. It's not a hundred percent clear where that line was. I think a couple people so one of the th- one of the reasons we wrote the report um and you know it's like a hundred pages long. one of the reasons it's got so much in it um was actually because we did want investigative journalists to continue to run down these leads, right. And so, you know, it wasn't, I didn't really consider it like my my job was to explain the data set and how the operation was structured. It was not to reach out as as, as far as like, as far as I was concerned, um, to the businesses that were kind of caught up in this, but, um, but some of the investigative reporters did in fact go on and do that. uh, And they found that some of them thought that they were actually kind of like paying for a boost or hiring a social media manager to, um, to kind of you know, generate leads for their businesses. So they didn't know what they were engaging with. This was not like um, they had no idea uh, (laughs) who was on the other end of this transaction. They just thought that they were doing marketing for their small business. Uh, So that was interesting to hear. Um, You had mentioned one of the other approaches and I I think I forgot to answer that in in my answer here.
0: Well, I think it was interesting I think that was really eye-opening as we consider disinformation, you consider sort of like flooding the field or the mirage effect. But the idea that you would set up an e-commerce site or try to help others and attempt to lure them. If you had your own e-commerce site and you could cookie those users, I think this is where you start to step into a sophisticated marketing thing that most people do not understand, right? That's the same reason that display ads follow you. It's the same reason that you get those Facebook notifications is because if you create Create this bucket to collect information you then can refine your targeting further and further so if you want to go after a certain group of people then make a site that looks like it sells the stuff that they would be interested in and then just get all of that uh personal information that the social network's entire ad tech platform sits on
2: yeah that was i think a thing that um they didn't use it. That was the thing that was so surprising because I was like, oh, "Okay, so they're doing so obviously they're cooking people, and then they're going to use a uh, they're a lookalike audience for people who have purchased the game. Mm-hmm. They're going to use a um, people who have visited my site targeting framework." Um, but that wasn't provided in any of the ad data, so I could see the the targeting, and that actually has been released to the public. So a lot of people have asked, "Why isn't this?" Entirely public. Sometimes that question just comes from <laughs> from academic researchers, but um, the reason is that there's a lot of pictures of real people in there, and that's part of the problem. So there's mm-hmm. particularly for the um, the black community and the uh, Texas and Southern stuff um, there's pictures of real people. And so they were, you know, going on Tumblr and finding, uh, content that was resonating or going on Instagram, finding content that was resonating that people had put out themselves. And then, so, you know, it's like, I share a picture with my child and I say something inspirational on it. And all of a sudden that picture is repurposed as collateral for an influence operation. Um, so that's the main reason that the bulk of the content, uh, was, was not, um, that's one main reason why why it wasn't released. But what was released was the ads. Uh, and that was because it had already been kind of paid to show. And they, they're about, um, I think, a little over 3,000, maybe 3,800 ads. And that was a small enough data set that they were able to redact the faces. So if you look at the ads archive that the House Intelligence Committee put out, you'll see black boxes over people's faces. Mm-hmm. Um, Nobody went and did that with the 200,000 organic <laughs> memes because that would be kind of a, an ordeal. Um, but with the uh, but but people can in fact go and see the targeting um, in uh, in those those images that the house released. <laughs>
0: Yeah. And I think um, we've seen Instagram being called out as kind of the next platform to watch uh, precisely because of this um, mimetic potential. And so we've we've now said this word a couple of times, but just for the benefit of, of our listeners, can you talk a little bit about why this mimetic warfare is so particularly effective?
2: Yeah. So there's um, two in the way I think about it, there's sort of like a two-pronged approach to propaganda at this point. The first is narrative propaganda, which is the long-form content, um, and that's the sort of stuff that you see. That, that's the kind of old Russian model of planting a story in a newspaper, mm-hmm. like, waiting for it to get you know cited and pointed to and quoted, and just kind of like launder its way up through to uh, out of a fringe site and into something more mainstream. Um, that involves actually reading. <laughs> um, right.
0: <I'm> <laughs> that's a, well, we won't touch that that particular
2: topic. <laughs> then there's the kind of propaganda you see on social platforms, which is designed to be 140, you know, and now, now, we're up to what, 280, but, um, at the time it was 140 characters or less. And, um, and, uh, and, and Facebook and Instagram, literally a picture, right. And mm-hmm. so there's, there's such power in that, in that image or that, that, that little snippet, a meme is, um, you know, to use the kind of geeky academic definition, it's like a unit of, um, a unit of cultural significance, uh, something that is interesting to a culture. um, It kind of denotes a membership in an in-group If people are using it. it, it, um, It's like a... It's It's a
0: signifier. It's like a a cultural flag. You can throw it up and say, I'm on that team.
2: Yep, and it's meant to be remixed and repurposed. That's kind of the point. The point is it is meant to convey something... um, in as distilled a way as possible. And that's because we're really designing our propaganda at this point to meet the um, requirements of the information ecosystem it's being disseminated on. So rather than long form in newspapers, like in the olden days, uh, you have this, um, the platform design choices influence the 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 um shape literally that propaganda takes. And you, as, you know, you mentioned you worked in marketing. So you know as well as I know that when you put out a new release, you design your Twitter cards and you design your Facebook picture and you design your Instagram picture. And you sit there with the dimensions up, knowing what the rules of the <laughs> medium are. You know, for a Facebook ad, can't be more than 10% text. There's so there's so much of it where like I think if you haven't actually run an ad campaign yourself, um, you know, the the realization that we can we um Design our messages to fit the medium that they're being disseminated on. Uh, And that is where you see mimetic propaganda fitting the design constraints of social media. And what social media layers on is this uh, algorithmic amplification, where the propaganda really becomes participatory in the sense that regular people play a role in clicking the share button. And so it's facilitating this Um, this viral dissemination that happens much, much faster than anything we could have seen in the narrative propaganda approach uh, that was used in the, uh, you know, 30 years ago. Right, and it
1: just Mm -hmm. sounds like it's going to continue to be a big problem, especially as we look ahead to 2020. So in in the report, it specifically called out that the question of whether... These operations swung the election is too narrow of a focus. The the influence operations started prior to 2015 and explicitly political content was a small percentage. So knowing knowing that, why does the public care and why is this important? I think it's important to explain to our, our listeners, you know, why we should all be paying attention. <laughs>
2: So one of the things we see with propaganda and influence operations worldwide now, and we've got, um, there was a paper that some researchers at uh, Princeton put out where they um, they made a really great database assessing 53 different operations. So the Internet Research Agency in the US is, um, we have probably more data on that than anything else. So we can, and, and also it was an issue of particular significance uh, for us culturally. Um, but there are a lot of different uh, collections of, of data around these operations. Um, what you see in some cases are the, uh, some some of the operations are run around very discrete moments in time. Something mm-hmm. protests, it's a campaign. One example of this would be the Hong Kong protests triggering a Chinese uh, Twitter response, right? That was not a thing that you know, China hadn't been running an extremely long-term influence operation to change American perception of Hong Kong. They the protests happened. There was a particularly pivotal, um, you know, meme friendly moment in the protest, which was a protester got shot by a beanbag in the eye, and then all of a sudden there were all of these memes of uh of the protesters with you know covering one eye in solidarity um and and the woman herself became kind of an icon and then this image became very iconic and then you see them come in and begin the zone right so that was the that was a sort of and it was not very well done it was incredibly sloppy (laughs) it was very easy to find
0: Um, all those twitter accounts created three days ago (laughs) With well, two actually, followers. No, they
2: bought them. They bought them. So they were buying stuff that was created back in like 2012. So you could see that, okay, they bought or took compromised accounts. We can't, you know, I of course have no
3: <laughs> visit
2: right. pay payments that went into this. But what I can tell you is those accounts were old. Those accounts used to tweet about things <laughs> like British boy bands and um, you know, do club promotion for a club down South in the U S and stuff. And all of a sudden they began to speak Chinese. Right. Um, so that, so that is likely either buying a spam account or in some way, um, getting access to compromised accounts. Uh, but that was an example of a real kind of discreet operation, meaning discreetly, sorry, not, not discreet in the, um, um, modest or cloaked sense of the word, but, but more, more in the, uh, here, the, in this moment in time, kind of sense of the word. Um, and then there's the long form, right, the long term um, operations that grow influence gradually over time. And that's what Russia is very good at. And
0: yes, the sort of the infiltration it, of communities was yes, astonishing.
2: And so it's really they're playing a long game. <clears throat> and that and Americans should care about that. Because, you know, we, we live in this time where attention is finite. And so if you're you know, if all of your experiences on social media are zone flooding with um, hot button culture war, outrage culture BS that's being artificially amplified by people who aren't even American, I think Americans actually should care about that. right? I think that there is such an erosion of trust uh, between different groups of Americans, and there's such a... Um, really kind of divisiveness in a lot of 100
0: right. so i
2: think i think you should want to know where that's coming from it's not to say russia is creating it but if you were to know that a lot of the stuff that you're seeing is exacerbated by um by foreign agitators i think that that you know I think, I hope anyway, that it makes people stop and think about what they're seeing and what kind of emotional response it's designed to invoke.
0: Yes, and there, so there's a, a paper out by the Army War College that um, you know posits that you know the operation is explicitly designed to attack the connective tissue, right? It's very difficult for a foreign power to attack kind of the three pillars of society, which is the citizenry, the government, and the military. Kinetic conflict is usually military to military. Right. But this, the civil society is the stuff that binds all three together. And if you can kind of tease that apart uh or inflame it. I mean pick your medical metaphor.
3: Um
0: you know, that's what will that's what you, where you can create chaos in the enemy, uh, or your adversary as as we tend to be. And I think you did touch upon something that's not really a question, but something that we've noted you know when we say russian bots or we say russian trolls or state actors sometimes um people that we're talking to when i say that as the general public think that it's easy to spot these accounts because like it's going to say location moscow which is <laughs> not the case and and we have in our own database seen accounts uh, that go from, you know, they're Venezuelan, uh, suddenly they're in Zimbabwe, yeah. suddenly they're um, speaking about uh, particular tax issues in Poland. And either these are like the smartest individuals on the planet who have a you know, inordinate grasp of nuanced detail of many <laughs> geopolitical issues, or yes, they're just being reskinned uh, over and over again.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the challenge. Where um, the mercenary organizations are a huge piece of this, and, and that is, I think, um, so you I know, mean, as far as where is it going, looking at the ability of the Kosovo and the Ukrainian. Uh, spam rings that we just did the... I worked on the takedowns for a couple weeks ago. Um, The Ukrainian pages had over a million and a half followers, right? Or I think it was maybe one million, so a little little less than a million and a half Um, without an ad, right? And (laughs) just purely incendiary memes using virality. And what they're doing is half the dissemination pathway is to just go and throw it into an aligned, sympathetic group.
3: Mm -hmm. So
2: I think... Particularly as Facebook promotes groups as the future of social media, what we're basically doing is we're we're taking people and instead of you know, you used to bring your real friend graph to Facebook. It used to be people you actually knew in the real world. Right. Mm. So there was some perhaps deviation and variation. You know, yeah, there's geographical similarities, but um, usually you, you have a couple of people who are at least a little ideologically different than you or something like that. And instead, we've really moved to this model of um, social media helps us find our groups and our tribes. And then...
0: Or well, if you're not, deepening the tribalism.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> So it, my, I, I'm in a bunch of groups on Facebook with my, you know, my real account, just, uh, you know, just me who, um, me, Renee, and, and in interests, you know, interests that I have, and I'm in these groups. And that's the majority of what I see in my feed, actually. And that's because the groups are active, they're highly engaged, people are having discussions, they're having conversations. And so Facebook is pushing me the content that's most engaging in its kind of roster of things that can show me in my feed. At any given point in time, I think a lot of people don't realize how curated their internet experience actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, yes and particularly on uh on facebook and instagram you know you're not seeing your all of your friends content you're seeing the stuff that the platform has decided is most resonant for you and that's because that lets you stay on the platform longer and so if you are in um these kind of incendiary political groups or even not even incendiary just groups where like you have a strongly held opinion particularly during the primaries right like everybody's um Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a Democrat and I'm out in California where everybody's a Democrat. And so the division is like <laughs> the like inner party warfare between Democrats right now, you know, and so everybody's in their, their heated group coming up with like, um, how they want,
0: like 100%. one, like one and, upsmanship in the, in the yeah. incendiary meme category.
2: Right. And I mean, I'm, you know, there's, um, there's a lot of Facebook groups actually that are dedicated to producing memes for candidates. It is very much a grassroots cultural thing. And so you see you know this this activity like these groups are incredibly active. So what we saw with the uh, the Ukraine and the Kosovo operations, just to kind of finish that thought, um is they were posting their memes into real groups. So using the Blue Lives Matter one, like there are real groups for police officer families, Mm -hmm. support groups and and communities where, which is a very important thing for them to have and a very real thing and a very valuable thing, I think. Um, But it also provides this opening where people who do want to spread this kind of incendiary BS uh, can go in and do that uh, and can take advantage of these people. And, you know, most of them aren't sitting there thinking like, foreign spammers and trolls are infiltrating my facebook group
0: right and- yes and, and i yeah and i want to return to that point because i think this is a refrain that we've uh had on the podcast so apologies for repeating that to our listeners but you know my friends um will send me things and i'll be like can you believe that this is america and it's usually criticizing some other group and i have to check that impulse i have to tell them like you know there's like a 90% chance that that's fake and i i want you to understand that this rage this outrage and visceral feelings that you have about your fellow americans is cultivated by a foreign power um like it's being teased out it's being you know they're pouring salt into the wound yes you disagree with those people but you didn't want to go at their throats <laughs>
2: it's really, you know, there's a lot of, um, it becomes real as part of the problem, right? So this Mm is where we we get a, we see this with a lot of the the content. It's that it starts off as being, um, it starts off as being something that the meme is maybe created uh, elsewhere. Actually, now they've just really begun repurposing existing highly polarized memes because there's such a collection of like uh, kind of far left and far right pages to choose from. You can just get your content. There's no reason to make it from scratch. Um, Mm -hmm. they'll they'll, They'll start it. They'll start the amplification process and then it gets picked up by real people, and then real people amplify it. And so you have this challenge. Um, there's a researcher named Kate Starbird, and she put out a paper called "Disinformation as Collaborative Work." And I had never heard the term "collaborative work" before, but it's apparently it's a it's a it's a um, concept that um, looks at how communities are you know how communities are collaborating uh, online. And it's interesting to see this. You know, she studies more crisis behaviors, crisis informatics, uh, but one of the things that we see quite often is campaigns that have like a seed of disinformation in them, but then they get pushed out in just the right way to just the right community. And then that community of real people amplifies them. And so one example of this, um, that is, I believe almost entirely domestic actually is, uh, there were some right-wing trolls on 4chan who decided, well, maybe right-wing is not the right word. They, They were actually just racist trolls on 4chan. And they created this, um, they created a petition and, you know, they, they had a, um, a few petitions where they were pretending to be black people putting out right. things about, uh, issues of that, that were of interest to the black community. And they were just doing this, you know, doing this, um, to create tension and to, you know, they, they thought of it, it's like trying to call attention to something that they found, um, you know, like these stupid lefties were (laughs) uh, challenging the ideas of the stupid lefties. And so they made this petition pretending to be black people and then pushed it out to the community. And then there are, in fact, some real people within the community who feel that way. And they took the petition and they amplified it. And that's where you get to the point where the platform at this point is like, okay, well, yeah, maybe this was fake when it started, but now seven or eight thousand people have gone on to share the link. So if we take it down, are we censoring a real point? of view? Indeed, and that's, that's a good where you point. start to get at the challenge of whether it's um, racist trolls or um, or foreign agitators. You know, when there is that element of deception, that is the kind of kernel of what is spreading. There's a lot of questions about what do you what do you do about that. Um, because there are going to be some people somewhere who are going to uh, be convinced by it, share that point of view already, and go on to amplify it within a real community, thereby increasing tension and 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 you know and spreading divisive content. And it's not the the companies are sort of uh, not a hundred percent clear on what they do with that sort of stuff.
0: I mean, if it weren't. <laughs> Uh, you know so horrific and in some parts of the world life and death you know there's an easy joke there to be made that it's sort of like that zen koan if a meme is you know retweeted does that make it any less true (laughs) Um, but yeah i mean we've seen just this morning um you know an incendiary post on facebook led to riots in bangladesh we've seen lynchings as a result of whatsapp hoaxes. So I I do want to impart to our listeners that this is very serious. I think it's easy to hear the news cycle and think, you know, these are just Russian trolls, or, you know, this is just like this light touch thing on social. But in many parts of the world where social media is effectively the internet, it, it has very real world implications. Um, but, uh, we are approaching our time and I want to thank you, Renee, very much for taking the time out of your day today to join us. It was a very interesting discussion and I highly recommend that anyone who's listening, download the whole report. It is an easy 100 pages to read. There are lots of memes Mm -hmm. to get through. Yes. Um, but it's it's also very illuminating and uh it should steal the resolve of uh every American voter. So thank, thank you. you again for taking the time. Thank it was a you pleasure for having
2: me, I appreciate it.
1: Well, as always, that was amazing. Renee is so impressive, and the fact that she started from anti-vaccine research is just remarkable to me.
0: Yes, I mean, I, she certainly gave us plenty to think about. I wrote down several reports that she mentioned. Um, so very good to be tapped into that, and also very good to know that we have uh, such powerful minds dedicated to try and solve these problems. Um, okay, so as we round the corner into the final week of Cybersecurity Awareness Month. We have an extremely special guest up for next week. Don't want to give it away just yet, but we are very excited, so be sure to tune in. As ever, we are eternally grateful to Abby Bruce for sound production and design, Matteo Cefaletti for our theme music, and to our listeners. If you like what you've heard, feel free to subscribe, give us a comment, give us a rating. We'd love to hear from you. But until next time, stay safe. This is The Zero Hour, signing off.